Hello and welcome to another in the series of Professional Practice Podcasts with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at the Department of Architecture at Kingston School of Art. And today we're in the head office of Arup in London to chat to Mark Richardson, Associate Director and Science and Industry Business Leader, an intriguing title that forms the basis of this conversation. We'll be talking a little bit about technological influences on architecture, and in particular, drone technology and what implications they are for practice. Very warm welcome, Mark. Thank you very much indeed. So let's start with you and some of the work that you're doing. Do you, do you want to just give us a little bit of a background to some of the projects that you're involved in generally in Arabs? I'm focusing at the moment on what we call science and industry. So this is everything from labs and master plans for major science institutions like DEFRA and uh, working for AstraZeneca through to manufacturing type projects. So we're doing a nappy factory for uh, Kimberly Clark in Lagos at the moment, which has to be one of the most sexy projects around. (laughs) (laughs) It's what you uh, study for, isn't it? (laughs) But no, it's it's a fantastic scheme. It's all about form follows flow, as we're calling about it. So it's all about understanding how projects, how buildings actually work and how architecture can integrate with manufacturing and integrate workers into the workplace and all of that kind of stuff. So it's got a good sort of strong social side to it, even though it's obviously a manufacturing facility. Through to hospitals type work, so we're doing an aseptic unit for um, uh, for Colchester Hospital at the moment, which is where they make cancer drugs for um, very sick patients. Uh, what else are we involved with? Uh, we was doing a small modular nuclear project last year with Rolls-Royce. Mm-hmm. So this is the future of nuclear power and um, uh, low carbon energy and how can we develop a scheme which is smaller and using off-site construction methodology to build it quicker and more efficiently and deliver energy for the yeah. nation. So just in terms of the way you've described all those, they were very much processes. Mm. Do you prioritise that function to the detriment of the architecture or do you merge those two together in some way? I, I think it's all part of the same, the same thing. I think when you study architecture you start with how does this how does this facility work how does this building work so how do people come in through the front door how do they move through to the lecture hall if you're doing a university building or through to the art gallery and think about an art gallery art gallery is about flow of spaces through moving through different size spaces to deal with different types of artworks and in many ways dealing with a science facility or a manufacturing facility is following exactly the same process. It's about how things move through. What's really interesting, it's actually a really interesting time within the sector at the moment because automation and technology are completely disrupting the whole way you think about the whole sector. So everything from, you know, if you think about a traditional lab building, traditional lab building is based around how long a person's arms are. So it's you've got desks mm. on the side and you've got all of that stuff and it's based around people and it's and a lot of lab work is simply people testing 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 and doing the same kind of work but if we're starting to automate a lot of that testing is it happening in a building that's shaped around a person or is it shaped around a robot and is it happening for example where people want to live so is it happening in Surrey or is it actually happening somewhere where you can do it more efficiently and more effectively but what it then means is the science becomes much more about the individual scientist and their ingenuity and how they interact with other people and so the more about creating a kind of community place where you can think about ideas so the science building becomes instead of in the countryside it becomes in the city so things like we you know 20 years ago we were doing work for Pfizer out in Sandwich and the back end of Kent and it was deliberately a long way away from people because you don't want people stealing your ideas 
Whereas nowadays you realize, actually, if you want to get the cutting edge of science, you really want to be bound in with the best universities and you want to be where people want to live. And actually, so you now you're in the city. So if you look at the Crick Institute next to the uh, King's Cross, that's a really good example. So what you're finding is the science facilities are splitting between very technical-based buildings, which are more like a, a kind of a, a warehouse, which in many respects we're not so involved with those because we're probably too expensive to design one of those sort of facilities, or the buildings that are actually much more about people and much more about a modern workplace and integrating into cities and culture and what makes a great place to live to live and work. Well, there you go. So. Thing. A stupid question. Well, what a brilliant <laughs> answer. That's good. Um, I may try and throw a few more stupid questions okay. at you later on. Well, let's, we, we'll come back to some of these kind of questions now on technology, but uh, tell us about, about yourself mm. in terms of how you started at Arabs, mm. where you, what's your background? So I've been 13 years at Arab now. I was 10 years with Ramjam, RMJM before, which are a bit defunct these days, at least in the UK. I suppose I had a fairly interesting career because I graduated and... At that time, it was the mid-90s, there was not much work in the UK. And where were you? I was studied in Edinburgh, and my now wife is Thai. And at that time, Thailand was the Asian tiger booming. So we moved, moved to Bangkok, lived in Bangkok for four years. Halfway through, I was there, the economy collapsed. <laughs> so in 1997, the, the currency collapsed. And we ended up, because we were, I was with Ram Jam, we ended up doing lots of work with our Hong Kong office, who at that time were coping with downturn the economy through investing in infrastructure so we're doing lots of rail projects mm. and again early days of CAD so we were doing offshore production using a 55k modem to send drawings down the phone <laughs> so you know this is a lot of what's going on today is similar types of things so I then moved back to the UK was then six years in London and I've now been 13 years with Arab I was four years in China came back about three years ago and I was in Shenzhen which is sort of one of the tech capitals of the, of the world. So you've got this new idea for a, a Gidget. There's two places in the world you probably want to go to. One is San Francisco and the other is Shenzhen. And Shenzhen used to say you could spend five years developing your Gidget in, in, in uh, San Francisco or you could spend six months in Shenzhen mm -hmm. <laughs> because we've got all the manufacturers, we've got all the makers, we've got the know-how, we've got all that type of stuff. So that was a fantastically exciting place to be in and just kind of overturning a different way of thinking about projects and, and yeah because when you were there in some ways that's when you mm. started am i right started working with drones um, yeah because you were designing a project in Shenzhen. yes so tell us so shenzhen is sort of the mobile phone capital of the world so uh, apple make their phones there and there's lots of major chinese tech companies based there and they also have a company called dji who are the leading consumer uh, drone manufacturer so 70 percent of the drones sold every year to consumers are made by dji and we started collaborating with them in two two ways first of all was doing some research projects and then secondly we were then invited to help them look at uh helping to design their headquarters building and we were down to the final two against fosters working working closely personally with them on that the research project came from the fact that it's very difficult to get decent GIS information in China because information is um, information is power, should we put it that way, and uh, the Chinese government are very careful to make sure that information is kept within the government center. So you need to be an LDI, Local Design Institute, to have access to GIS information. But we were doing major master plans and to get a survey deep in the countryside of a kind of creek 
where there had never been a survey and getting it done traditionally, and there probably was no GIS information in many cases as well, was nigh impossible. So we teamed up with DJI, who helped with the drones and gave us their kind of, lent us their top quality drone. We teamed up with Hong Kong University and also an organization whose name I've forgotten, German company, who were uh, a um, software company. So the three of those, plus Arup providing the how do you integrate it and use it, were creating a product which was basically to take drones and fly them over over a space and create a 3D model instantaneously, which was quite fantastic. So it was both fantastic for both surveying, but also we used it on projects where we were doing major excavations, and you can then measure before and after, fly it over every other day, and you can see whether they've actually dug as much as they said they were going to. We also started then looking at how we might use drones for surveying facades, so you can fly a facade, a drone around a facade and see if there's any insulation missing, for example, by putting heat detectors onto it and such right, like. So right, it's right. also, so it's a kind of multi-use tool. And, and actually in this country, we're also using them to create um, 3D models of existing buildings. So if you're doing work in um, an existing historical building, you, I mean, you might not be flying the drone, but using the same technology, maybe you're holding it and walking it around, creating... Um, 3D models, which you can then immediately start, you know, developing your designs on the back of. Okay, right. Let me just bring us back to, yeah. to, to reality. You are the impressively titled science and industry business leader. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean? So what that means is trying to develop our science and industry sector. So that's yeah, basically a way of just organizing how we develop our business. And rather than looking at projects as individually, starting to bring projects within those sectors together and starting to create both a body of marketing type information for building a business but also a knowledge base so you find ideas jump across from one to another you find those common themes what i'm kind of getting at is that you know imagine people listening to this might yeah. be a, a, a student and here you are science and trans and industry yeah. business leader how did you fall into i mean are you a scientist are you no. fascinated by science no. you, did you directly decide you were going to do this or how did it happen I, to a certain extent like most people you start your career you don't really know what you want to do and in fact you want to do everything you don't really want to fix yourself in fact most architects like variety and i like variety i like to be meeting a new client and puzzling out how do we shape and create the, fa- the best possible facility for them. I've done a bit of everything. I've done rail projects. I've done a sports project. I did a national stadium for Saudi Arabia. I've done lots of education, lots of university projects, lots of school projects. I did a TV studio for Sky Studios, which was world's first naturally ventilated TV studios. I think after a while, as you start thinking about focusing in on certain areas and developing an expertise. So it's really only actually in the last three or four years that I looked at my career and went, this sounds interesting. And also the sector sounds really interesting at the moment. It's, I think it's one of the most interesting times we work in the sector because of digital and automation. But now it's suddenly everything's upturned and every client doesn't. Most All our clients don't know what they want and they want us to try and guide them. And that makes it really interesting. Yeah. So I would say at the beginning of a career, don't limit yourself unless you really know what you want. This uh, side of the company yeah. that you're now working for, the science yeah. side, obviously that kind of brings you into con- close contact with new technologies, not yeah. just drones, but yeah. GIS and yeah. presumably 3D printing. Yeah. And all that. Um, so, that, so that's one thing that we can talk about, but it's also we're in Arab and yeah. the whole concept of total design, yeah. which is you know, fundamental to the mantra of, of um, Arab in some mm. ways. Tell us whether you think it's developing as a concept. I think it is. I think, well, I think 
in some ways most practices talk about it. I think it's not necessarily particularly unique. But it, uh, but it's type of where we go as a company because we're now 12,000, 13,000 people globally, which is quite big. So that total design way of thinking is now how do you organize a city? How does that science facility fit in with the infrastructure mm. and everything mm. that works around the city? So, for example, the Crick is a good example. The Crick is an integrated part of a master plan around the King's Cross, but it's also integrated with the universities around and all of that kind of stuff. So it's it's the bigger context. Absolutely, absolutely. So in terms of, as we tapped into earlier, the idea of other technologies, 3D printing. I see some in the yeah. in the lobby when I came in. Uh, again, how do you, how are you using this? So how is that helping your life as an architect? Um, Was well, a mixture of things because we have a traditional model shop as well. So you use the tool that suits the method of communication. It's all about communication, and it's about how do you demonstrate ideas to help clients to think through their problems. And find solutions. So we use a mixture of obviously everything is 3D these days. We go straight into 3D with whether it's Rhino, probably in the early stages, but also in parallel Revit. So there's a whole question of how you integrate those two and what point you overlap with all of that. So that then helps you to understand it internally. So I, mean, I agree with you that in terms of it's not necessarily the form, it's the content of the mm. information that we're, that we're talking about. Uh, the flip side of that is that the whole conversation about CAD, BIM, mm. whatever. Mm is that it was meant to kind of revolutionize mm. the industry mm -hmm. internally. It was meant to bring us all together, yep. partnering, but also it's meant to aid productivity. Mm. And I don't know whether you think that, you know, it's it's a bit like that old um, adage about building more roads. It encourages mm. more cars to drive. Yeah. Yeah. It, and so have we created this new technological industry for mm. its own benefit? Mm. There's definitely an arms race about what is a stage C or stage two report, yeah. Reba two report. If I look at the Reba two reports I was doing, 20 years ago, and they barely had elevations. You didn't so you need to do the elevations. It was all about. Whereas nowadays, and particularly if you're working in China, you design the elevation before the inside of it. <laughs> For me, is is that I think the technology allows you to change things quicker, but it makes it a lot long, lot longer to draw it first time around. Okay, so, so it's that front-ended stuff that yeah. we were told, told about. So that's working, is it? Well, it also helps to visualize. So we're now getting the thing where it always used to be that your architectural training was about develop a 2D drawing and then you, as the architect, spend seven years trying to understand what that's going to look like 3D. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whereas nowadays you design everything in 3D. And so it used to be you look at it and go, oh, that's not quite what I pictured. But you don't tell the client, oh, it's fantastic, it's exactly like I pictured. Whereas nowadays you get this slight disappointment, oh, it looks exactly like the render. <laughs> <laughs> so it all worked out beautifully. <laughs> yeah, no, so I, it's I, useful. It's useful. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. Very quickly, in terms of Drone technology or mm. technology? Do you have all this stuff in house? Um, yeah, you a drone flyer yourself? I'm not a drone flyer. I was given a drone, and unfortunately, I haven't managed to work out how to use it. So I have one at home. We sometimes have problems with drones for legal reasons. So different countries have different legal setups, and depending on how risk averse we feel as an organization depends on whether we actually fly the drones ourselves or whether we get somebody else in to do it. In China we were particularly nervous because it's a grey area and we did not want to get on the wrong side of the authorities. Sure. So for that reason we used um, other people to fly the drones. Right, right. In the UK it can often be a bit tricky as well. It's all about health and safety. If it falls out of the sky and hits somebody on the head Right. Where do you sit with that? It's also flight paths and stuff and like flight that. Flight paths yeah. as well, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, do you use these all the time? Do you think that they are ever useful, or do you think that sometimes they're overclaimed for and overused? And you know, 
this technology? I think it depends. I haven't used them too much in the UK yet, simply because the types of projects we've been working on haven't necessarily needed it. Um, I think they are useful when you're doing something a little bit more out of the ordinary, because you know people have been building buildings for millennia without without drones. I think they they're used. I see them being used quite a lot by contractors to show their site to the client, mm-hmm. and I think they're useful there. And they're also using them for things like we talked about them measuring the earth dig and things like that. We were doing some work with one of the northern universities who have a unit and they, they're using it a lot for things like mountain rescue, finding use, use, in, use in that area, right, right. Of test, things like that. Increasingly we're finding them useful for things like facade surveys and for surveys of existing buildings, they're probably the main areas. When you get this information from the drone scanning, mm. let's say mm. survey information, mm. What it, it comes back with a memory stick full of stuff. Yeah. Uh, what do you What do you do with it? How does it work? It then does need does need processing. So, because it comes back in one particular format, it then took usually a, a day or so to reformat and put in the right kind of thing. So it then becomes effectively a three D map that then can be put into Rhino or Revit or whatever. But not not difficult work. Okay. And then does that, has that affected the way that your office or the way that you manage your job? Of the way the office runs, you know, do you have different library stores? Do you have data protection legislation where you have to get rid of this information within a certain period? I mean, yeah, not necessarily. I mean, we haven't, as I say, because of the scale, because the yeah, scale of yeah, the yeah. team I'm in at the moment is more the architecture team. Yeah. The team I'm in at the moment, these sort of big, usually there's information yeah. based on that. I mean, our urban design team, who do much bigger schemes and often do things overseas. Yeah. Um, probably are looking into all of this and finding them more useful. So the the reason why I looked at the drone survey when I was in China was because I ran the architecture and the planning team. Right. So we were doing massive projects as well as yeah, more architectural yeah, yeah. scale yeah. ones. So I'm, it's not so much what I'm covering at the moment. Okay. I mean, one of the things about Arab is we're a um, employee-owned company. So uh, one of the things that we do is we put aside a certain amount of our profits every year for research projects and anyone within Arup can apply for a research grant and provide it fits in with the broader you know direction of the areas of interest we're looking at then funding for that um, all right look have I missed anything out any key questions any big finish that you have I think it's a really interesting time to be an architect I think there's a, a lot that's changing which society is is shifting itself and doesn't quite know what it wants to do clients don't know what they want to do and I think that it's a brilliant time to be an architect right now I mean aesthetics is fantastic I would I take aesthetics for granted I think with any project a client will assume or know from your portfolio that you can make things aesthetically so let's bank that the question then is about actually how you use your project or your development help a client to think about what the future of what they might need better. No, That's I think... That's a elegant way of saying that. No, it's an important thing to say, because obviously they were bad times to be an architect. So They are, where architecture was stripped down to purely an aesthetic language, whereas I think clients are now looking for a guide in a way that they were not necessarily looking for architects to do in the past. We've run out of time. I'm afraid I have to say a big thank you to Mark Richardson of Arab, uh, and for Arab themselves for their hospitality, and I hope it provided you with a useful introduction to the new tech that we'll be following up in the near future. Until then, dip into our back catalogue of interviews designed to help you through the professional practice minefield. They're available on SoundCloud and iTunes, and I welcome your comments. Till the next time, all the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.